Welcome and bienvenue to the Inclusive Research with Pearl podcast. I am Leslie Sikapa and I will be your host for this episode. Today we are joined by two amazing guests, Hurina Sangra and Christian Numi, to talk about the Global North and the Global South. Quite often, especially in research, we hear these terms and have a general understanding of what they are. But do we really take the time to think about what they mean or where they come from? And more importantly, do we think about some of the biases and assumptions that shape our understanding of these terms? Join in for this insightful conversation. But before we get started, I'd like to remind you that the full transcript is available in the show notes linked below. On that note, let's dive into it. Hello, Rohina. Hello, Christian. Uh, it's such a great pleasure to have the two of you here today. And uh, just before we get started into our discussion topic, I would like to give the both of you a chance to introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Leslie. Um, thank you, Rohina. Uh, my name is Christian Numi. I'm originally from Cameroon. I used to be a high school teacher for history, geography, and civics. Um, I've worked on several research projects over the years uh, with researchers from Canada, the US, uh, Europe, and Africa. Uh, most recently, I completed a PhD at the University of Toronto in comparative higher education, uh, governance, and uh, policy. Uh, my dissertation compared Senegal and Ghana in the participation of higher education stakeholders in higher education policymaking. I'm currently a bilingual project coordinator at Ryerson University, and I'm joining from uh, Toronto. Thank you so much, Christian. And uh, Harina, you can go ahead as well. Thank you, Leslie. And thank you, Christian. Uh, so my name is Rahina Sangrar, and I'm an occupational therapist by training. I have completed my education mostly in the greater Toronto area and as an occupational therapist, but also worked in uh, Northern Ontario in the hospital setting mostly. And I completed my PhD at McMaster University. And the topic was actually around uh, transportation and driving in older adulthood. And most recently, I've just joined on in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Toronto as a teaching stream assistant professor. Thank you so much, Rina. It's really awesome to hear what the both of you are doing. And it's definitely some interesting work. I'm really sure that as we go into the discussion and the topic, we'll have more opportunities to see your expertise come through. Moving on to the discussion, in the development sector in global health as well as in academia we often hear these words global north and global south so i want us to start just by talking about what exactly they mean what do they represent where where do these terms come from oh i, I can i can start um those are very complex uh, concepts to uh, to define it's um it's very also difficult to pinpoint where uh, it all started but i will say that for the most part it's geographically based but then when you dig a little bit deeper you start to realize that some countries that are considered global north are actually not in the northern hemisphere, so to speak. For example, Australia and New Zealand are typically considered part of the global north, but obviously they are in the deep south on the planet. But for me, I, I, I think really it tends to be based on a level of economic development. Some will argue capitalist economic development uh, because some countries that are developed may not be part of the global north. 
China, for example, if you look at the Chinese uh, economic indicators, relatively comparable to many countries that are considered to be part of Global North, and yet they are not uh, in the list of uh, Global North countries. Um, and it's also obviously, talking about China, is also obviously a political division uh, between Global North countries, which some will also argue are part of the American empire, so to speak. It's, I would say, yeah, it's a very difficult concept to, uh, to define. Uh, but I would say when you, when you talk about Global North and Global South, most people tend to, I, I, I would say at least researchers, they tend to agree or have an idea of what, what you imply, but getting to the details, it, it becomes complex. Yeah, I completely agree with Christian's assessment that when it comes to conversations between researchers, for the most part, we don't really need to explain our definitions, but there is this common understanding of what we mean. And, and I've been trying to do a little bit of research and, you know, dig a a bit deeper to try to find out why these different terms have been used more recently. And and sometimes you think that's just the most common or politically correct term to use. But where is where is it coming from? And and why did that come up? So I've been thinking about it in relationship to the other terms that we've used previously, right? So Western versus non Western countries, or the first world versus third world. Um, and then even critiques around developed and developing versus underdeveloped. And, and what I've seen in people who are talking about this is this idea that there's a hierarchy created in, in the other terms that are used that implies that countries that are lower income or um, of different political, have different political and historical contexts are lesser than um, the countries that are more Western or, you know, considered first world countries. So the notion of the global North and global South, as Christian said, like, it's very complicated how these words came about, but it tries to remove that level of, a, of hierarchy in, in naming the countries and really just focuses on recognizing the fact that there is a political historical context that we need to keep in mind for this group of countries that we're, we're talking about that do tend to be predominantly in the southern hemisphere, um, but also have this shared history of colonization and oppression that, you know, between countries in the global south or even just population groups that are considered to be within the global south can almost find these commonalities between them, shared vulnerabilities in a way. Thanks a lot to the both of you. And definitely, I would say that makes a lot of sense. It's very common, like in this field, to always say, oh, global not, global south. We don't know what that is without actually uh, trying to dive deeper into exactly where did these come from or um, what are we trying to say when we are talking about those two places. And as you were both talking, Christian Kelly said that why this is geographically defined, there are some underlining assumptions. And also, Karina also kind of pointed to that about, like, you know, just this whole idea of we, we say we know what it is without really knowing what it is. So I just wanted to explore what exactly some of those assumptions could be. What do we assume beyond that geographical separation? What do we think of those two places? And since we are really talking in this context of research, I wanted to explore specifically how do these assumptions also affect the, the approach that we take to whether it's initiating a research project or actually the approach that we take as we are conducting a research project? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, um, as a researcher, I know we are, when we talk about global and global South, we are, we're not really talking about individual countries, but for me, it still um, carries with it an assumption of uh, power imbalance. 
Rihanna has already addressed that a little bit. Rich versus poor, develop uh, versus developing, some sort of a moral superiority. At least when you when you look at uh, international politics, and uh, if there's a reference to global north and global south, uh, there's a tendency to to consider that uh, whatever is done in the global north is some some sort of somehow morally superior. And and the way it affects uh, research in in many ways. For example, we tend to uh, to believe that the methodology used by researchers in the north to some extent superior to the methodology that are used by research in the global south, if they are, if at all they recognize a specific methodology used by researchers from the global south, uh, you have that power imbalance. And and also, what is acceptable knowledge? If you are from the global south, there are certain things that are not considered acceptable. That might not be considered acceptable knowledge in the in the global north. Uh, it's it's quite unfortunate. And 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 as a researcher who was originally from quote unquote the global south, interacting with researchers from both regions. It's sometimes a little bit of a challenge, but I mean, we can probably discuss that later. Yeah, and I I love uh, the term that you use, moral superiority, that notion of we just know better. And I think that to your question, Leslie, that's the most harmful assumption that comes with the use of the terms global north and south, especially if you don't understand the context of why these phrases were developed, basically, right? Like the the idea that the, the term global south came to be so that you're centering the countries that are in this predominantly in the geographical south, but there's a really nice definition of who it includes that I uh, always go back to. So it's groups that fall under this, and it's considered an analytic group, who include migrants, people seeking refuge, indigenous populations, low-income communities, or people with a disability. So it's also a lot more encompassing to, to find the similar groups within who we would consider to be, um, or countries that we would consider to be the global north right so what are those communities that we usually impose our ways of thinking and our knowledge upon Um, and that's going back to what Christian was saying is is imposing knowledge structures imposing policies and procedures and expecting that to be just this one way of of living life of understanding what a good life is for example and and I come to that from a place of you know in occupational therapy we always try to envision okay what's a meaningful existence to you and a huge critique in our profession actually has been that the fact that all of our theories and the way that the research is done imposes what we mean by a good life in more western ideologies upon the rest of the world that maybe doesn't uh, doesn't define a good life in the same way and so that's sort of this idea that our way of thinking and information that we prioritize our way of building relationships finding problems and solving problems individually together all of that which is the crux of research gets impacted when we go into communities that have a different way of thinking than us I don't know if I ventured too far away from your question Leslie not at all your your response was right on point and it's very interesting to see when both of your responses really align with each other and I definitely wanted to follow up on the point that Christian started about how our understanding of global not on global south affect the interaction between researchers and I think the large extent is also very much related to what you were talking about both of you were talking about this idea of imposing certain ways of thinking onto others so in your experience how exactly does these uh, different understandings of this to places affect these interactions uh, within research teams or among researchers? Um, I think I, I, I will talk about what we, uh, we have been trying to do with Lean at ICDR. So we, uh, we realized that uh, 
uh, research funds would tend to flow from the global north to global south, but we would we didn't want the ideas to flow that way. So we we have tried, and um, it's been a it's been a challenge to be honest. We have tried to make sure that uh, the ideas developed for research collaboration will stem from our collaborators from the south. Even even basic things as uh, organizing meetings, we try not to take the lead in organizing like Zoom meeting. Uh, we want those things to come from our partners from the global south because we organize this power imbalance and to a large extent now it goes back to funding. You might say that uh, there's, there's been slight improvement, I would say, in recognizing that uh, there are, for example, methodologies and way of knowing from the global south that are equally valid. Some will argue even more valid than methodologies and uh, we have ways of knowing from the global north, uh, but the, the funding still flows largely from the, the global north. But we try to make sure that we and we involve and we let our partners take the lead as much as possible. But but I would say it's it's also a challenge for our partners to embrace that, to understand that it's okay for them to take the lead on many of those things uh, because they're also not used to it. Um. Yeah, and I think from I I agree. Like the funding perspective is quite. Um, is the foundation of it because if you don't have funding you can't do the research right and and also the element of who decides to provide that funding and, and our role as allies in justifying those methodologies in those applications sometimes I find as like like how do we phrase what we're trying to achieve with different methodologies it's almost this case trying to go from a very quantitative research world into integrating more qualitative like that was sort of one struggle that existed to justify a different way of knowing and thinking but another thing that I have found really interesting is also just the logistics are so challenging at times right so we've talked about technology um, but logistics around knowledge translation and knowledge implementation so from a healthcare profession specifically, we talk a lot about evidence-based practice and, you know, we want to use randomized controlled trials or guidelines. And one of the biggest challenges I find is that they're, those guidelines, those theories, they're developed in completely different populations with completely different contexts and do not translate into other communities. So the recommendations as clinicians were making um, in these other communities, they're, they're just not relevant. And, and you can almost sometimes see as clinicians are talking on a Zoom screen or making recommendations for practice, it falls on, I guess it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't get picked up in uh, communities in the global south because it's not only don't they have the resources to do it but it just doesn't fit with the systems and the structures and um, the resources that are available in those communities as well so I feel that a lot of the times you know these for example stroke guidelines or you know guidelines for long COVID things like that that are being developed in the in countries that are in the global north don't necessarily always translate into these other settings. And so it's really important to involve researchers, practitioners, community-based stakeholders that understand the context in that, um, that process of looking at the literature, critically analyzing it, and then looking to see how it can be implemented if in, it can in any way. Yeah, oh, and yeah, and if I can add to that, so um, even the basic things as um, obtaining ethics approval from your institution here, there is a big piece of it that uh, talks about informed consent. And very often the, you obtain that informed consent by getting a signature, uh, something which is not quite common in the global South. Someone might agree to participate in your uh, research, but then uh, 
obtaining a signature is a, it's going to be a struggle. And I, I'm not sure our um, institutions in the global north, especially North America, have um, taken that into consideration enough that there are many ways to obtain consent without getting a signature. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so from what I see, it's, it's very much around like the logistics just being like one-sided. And still related to this idea and also something that was mentioned before, I think it was Christian who brought that up around when you actually take that step back to give the opportunity to your partners in the global south to take the lead, it can also be challenging to make that happen. So what would be uh, some of your recommendations actually to address the discomfort that partners might have in taking on this quote-unquote new role that they've uh, not been used to before? Uh, one thing I, I can say to that is um, I will go back to my uh, PhD dissertation. It is one thing that I noticed while I was thinking about what to write on, even the, my research topic, uh, was the, uh, in the lit- literature, there's also that clear-cut division that, for example, international institutions, mainly dominated by northern countries, will impose certain policies on the global south. But my experience uh, was that it was more complex than that, including the agency of actors in the global south. So that's why I at one point decided to uh, take on um, a different uh, theoretical framework like post-colonialism uh, which sort of gives I mean it provides room for na- for national uh, actors in the global south to express their agency but but also to discover even that they have agency because uh, when you talk to some of the researchers in the global south they might also embrace that or repeat that discourse about the power imbalance that they have and the uh, the policies that impose on on them from the global north, uh, but when you dig deeper, you ask them questions, you realize they they come to also realize that well they have agency. There's one example during my dissertation where I asked them how do you influence policies uh, in higher education. They when and then they they think about it, they reflect and they start to list ways that they were able to change policy or at least alter the initial policy from the government. Uh, sometimes imposed by international actors, international donors, which has um, sort of changed the outcome of many policies uh, in, in for example in, in the early 90s in many african countries there was this idea that, that students should, should contribute to their education at uh, in higher education at universities uh, many countries imposed um, implemented attrition fee but many other countries resisted that so it's not widespread um, one country is like senegal where they they try to do that but they face strong resistance from lo- local actors but but it's not something that national actors necessarily remember you you need to probe and give them the space to reflect on what they've done and what they have been able to achieve so it's basically to answer your question it starts with uh, as a researcher probably reflect on the type of theoretical uh, approach you have in doing research some approaches will, will give more agency to to uh to people from the global south than others okay so i hear recommending like a post-colonial approach in the work and back to Rohina, since you were talking about knowledge translation itself do you have any practical recommendation when it comes to like knowledge translation to actually make this process with global north and global south partners more equitable if i can put, put it that way yeah, no, it's such a good question. And and I'm also listening to Christian's contributions from a lens of not having done as much research within other settings, but thinking about where I sit within the global north and how my exposure to different partnerships across different global north global south countries and what's worked what hasn't worked and in terms of practical recommendations what I've seen that has been really valuable is being that support system for researchers who are attempting to take on that agency so 
even things of like, how do you navigate the publishing world? How do you, what are the different pathways? Can you create templates for cover letters that you can use as a support? Can you provide suggestions on how to frame papers that, that you know, so the, the dialogue with reviewers is a little bit smoother and going back and forth and thinking about specifically knowledge translation and implementation. The biggest part of that is the fact that the researchers on the ground understand their communities the best. So they know that, you know, in the global north, handing out pamphlets, we, we know that there's not very good evidence from a health, health literacy perspective, but that is a strategy that we use. What's the strategies that work in those communities? Is it WhatsApp groups? Is it door-to-door visiting people and sharing information? So really understanding the communities and being able to support researchers through that process. So there are models and frameworks of knowledge implementation that have been created to actually support organizations and knowledge brokers is the term within those organizations to take research evidence and turn it into policy and disseminate it within different structures and and make that behavior change happen to some degree, what could that actually look like um, in these different settings? Like to me, that's what's really interesting. And I know it's not a concrete example, but it's really thinking in that way is how do we enable people to be able to create systems and structures that are embedded within their own communities that can interpret and apply. And yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the direction that I'm going in is, is more of like creating system level frameworks. Yeah. So like just making, uh, you know, creating those enabling structures to actually allow uh, researchers in different spaces to be able to engage as much as others. So uh, since we are running out of time, I'm just going to like throw in just this question. Um, If you were to summarize and just give that one thing for researchers trying to engage in international work, particularly researchers both in the global north or global south trying to engage with each other, what would be that one recommendation on how to go about it? Um, a very difficult to come up with a one recommendation, but um, I would say you listen to people uh, in the community you are trying to uh, do your research in. Uh, they, they might not embrace that responsibility at first, but you need to provide that to them and uh, take time to explain uh, how important it is for them to take the lead. Thank you. My, my takeaway is, is very similar, is relationship building and trust and communication. And I think that the crux of how some of this work can be successful is not just rushing into collaborations and assumed expectations and Im- imposing roles and imposing um, deadlines and doing so in a way that we traditionally do research in <laughs> the global north, but looking to see what's feasible within the context that we're actually hoping to make an impact within and building building the connections with them. Thank you so much to the both of you. Building relationship, building trust in this type of work, very essential. So thank you so much for being here today and it was great having you. Thank you so much. It was great being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Global North, Global South. While they are often presented as developed versus underdeveloped, rich versus poor, providers versus receivers, well, it's not always such a clear cut. As we heard today, even within the Global North, there exist groups or circumstances that are often stereotypically used to characterize the Global South. It's important to reflect on some of these assumptions that we impose on people or countries because of their membership to the Global North or the Global South. 
and think about how these influence our practices, our ways of thinking, and what we consider as acceptable or not. These are just some of the things to reflect on following today's conversation. And on that note, I would like to thank you all for listening. Be sure to check out our show notes for transcripts and other resources. And remember to follow and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. Did you check out the previous episode? You should definitely do that. And if you have any questions or would like to join the Pearl Network to stay up to date with our work, feel free to reach out to us through our email address, p-i-r-l-pearl at utoronto.ca. Thank you so much. Take good care of yourself. Bye.